Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. This is Nick Shalom. Thanks so much for joining this next episode of In the Nick of Time. This is going to be so much fun today. We have a great guest, as always, with Sanjay, the CTO of Traceable AI. It's going to be a great discussion on APIs and security, but also on how to take a startup and grow it to a unicorn and uh, and make it uh, uh, to exit. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Let's also uh, take a step back uh, today. Uh, if you've missed uh, this, we uh, we are starting a, a defense group uh, for investments. So a lot of uh, uh, you guys are reaching out to me asking for help when it comes to uh, finding uh, VCs that are interested in uh, working with uh, uh, defense companies. And so if you're struggling or if you want to have a great discussion with uh, with VCs and uh, uh also, uh, uh, early investors uh, that are uh, helping uh, DC uh, uh, def defense-related uh, uh, companies, make sure you uh, join this new LinkedIn group. You're going to see uh, we just created it today, and we have a lot of traction already, a lot of uh, uh, VCs and investors. Of course, you know we're not going to be spamming those guys, but the goal is to have uh, open dialogue and make sure that uh, we can learn and see what works and and pretty much understand kind of the state of the market when it comes to organizations with dual, dual use. Obviously, most people want to make sure you're not completely dependent on the defense market, which is usually uh, pretty slow and painful. So uh, that's something to keep in mind. And we have a lot of great discussion engagements. We're going to have uh, uh, some VCs on the show as well to talk about uh, investments. So uh, stay tuned for that. But uh, in the meantime, if you want to join the group, of course, uh, we're going to limit it to uh, 5i uh, nations. So, of course, uh, if you're in the U.S., uh, no problem. Uh, but only uh, please invite people that are only um, 5i for now to make sure we don't bring uh, our Chinese and Russian uh, folks on the on the group. That would not be uh, uh, great. So keep that in mind. If you missed that, uh, please join the, the group and uh, we'll be able to scale this in the next couple of weeks. Also, as always, as a reminder, before we have our guests, uh, if you want to subscribe to the YouTube channel, uh, do that uh, on uh, youtube.com slash uh, uh, Nicolas Chillon. You're going to be able to see uh, not only the show uh, every Tuesday, uh, but also the videos we're going to be pushing every week on, on tech. So this week uh, we published uh, uh, the video on GitOps. Uh, when you finally understand what GitOps is, so if you want to move at the pace of relevance and enable your teams to instantiate your applications with a push button deployment, and understand the five principles of devs of uh, GitOps. Uh, make sure you check it out. Uh, we talk about uh, uh, Teams with Harness, with Argo CD, and uh, WeaveWorks uh, with Flux as well. Uh, that's the latest video. Before that, if you missed it, we have a great video on Service Mesh, and before that, Zero Trust. So really, uh, we're checking all the the key buzzwords out there. Uh, but it's really foundational uh, technology that you need if you want to succeed in DevSecOps. So check that out. If you missed uh, the video, we got some great feedback already from you guys. We also launched a new website. So if, if you want to track the videos, if you want to see uh, the agenda and stuff like that, you can you can check out the website here. And uh, finally, if you've not yet subscribed to the mailing list to get uh, the emails about these videos and uh, the show, uh, we're not spamming people. It's really uh, once or twice a week at best to, to announce the videos. Uh, register so we're not dependent on LinkedIn to uh, make all this visible to you. Uh, we, we are way too dependent right now uh, out of uh, um, the 37,000 subscribers on LinkedIn. We only have, I think, uh, 5,000 on the mailing list. So that's a little bit scary. Uh, so if you want to subscribe, uh, do that, please. 
And uh, we're going to bring now in a, in a second our guest, uh, Sanjay. But first, I'm going to give you a quick uh, background. If you uh, don't know who Sanjay is, he's a co-founder and CTO of Traceable AI. But before that, he was uh, also part of the founding team of App Dynamics, uh, which was acquired by, by Cisco. And so he was a VP of engineering uh, there as well. Uh, at App Dynamics, he was also responsible for the product teams and the application performance management and database monitoring products. Uh, great set of uh, tools that uh, did very well with, with Cisco. Uh, he built uh, those solutions uh, to help the DevSecOps uh, teams uh, to move to uh, this universe that we know pretty well of digital transformation uh, with many Fortune 100 customers. So that's uh, uh, a massive uh, undertaking. Uh, of course, uh, he has some fancy degrees and, and patents, but uh, we don't care too much about that here. I'm sorry. Uh, so let's bring let's bring Sanjay on now. Welcome. Good morning. Good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Nick. Thanks for having me on this one. And, yeah, uh, we're so excited to have <laughs> thanks you. Thanks for the introduction. That way. <laughs> well, you know, you you you're uh, quite the the well-known figure in the DevSecOps world, and obviously, thanks to what you've achieved in the past, a lot of people pay attention, particularly, of course, to uh, uh, to now what you're doing with Traceable. Uh, you know, when we usually start the show, we always have kind of the same uh, uh, process, so people get to know you a little bit better, and no one better than yourself to uh, to give us a little bit of a rundown on your journey. Uh, before we get into the real meat of uh, of the fun stuff, absolutely, yeah. So uh, I guess I started my journey. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, giving away my age and everything else, but that's okay. Uh, started my journey very early on, uh, probably at the age of uh, maybe about 12, 10 to twelve, uh, with computers itself. I think that was when the uh, again I, I grew up in India. I did all my studies there in India, and uh, there was a time when uh, I was in a remote part of uh, the country, um, call it a village, but now it's all become a little bit of a city. At that time, it was a village, and there we had uh, our first experience with what computers would be like. This was a small library that was government-funded, and somehow we had gotten access to uh, I think it was IBM PCs. Again, I'm going back years now. Um, at that time, and there was the uh, there was the exposure to graphics at that time, where they where I had the opportunity to go build a house and whatnot. So again, a very young age, not engaged at that point. Nowadays, meaning kids are kids are writing lots and lots of code at very early age. But at that time, that was a very interesting experience for us, a small group of kids uh, trying to get to know something big, right? Uh, something that was very unique uh, in India. And as I said, in a remote part of the country, it's very hard to get. So that was an exciting time. That was my first exposure. And that's when I really got excited about computers itself. Right? Then cut to my undergrad degree um, is where uh, my dad uh, at that time, uh, and again, remember, we, 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 we come as part of uh, uh, not, not, not well-to-do as families and everything else, my dad at that point spent about a thousand dollars, or even more at that time. But but it was a lot of money for us. Uh, but he wanted to make sure uh, uh, that I get access to a computer so that I can do lab work. I can learn more about it and everything else. So that was a P6, I think, a Pentium at that time. Uh, probably I don't remember. Maybe. 
uh, I don't remember how much of memory, but I remember that there was a, a gig of hard disk at that time. Uh, that was so literally we had to put all of that, all of those things together, as in the processor and the, and, and we, we had to literally build it up from the ground up uh, with, with all the pieces that we got and got Linux going on one end. At that time, it was very early, and then got uh, uh, Windows going on the other side, as in the boot up uh, aspects of it. So it was a lot of fun at that time. Got to learn a whole bunch of it. Um, and so that was my exposure and journey that way that we got through and then got into as an engineer is where I started all of these things as a developer, core developer, uh, did some of that work in India. And then I landed in the U.S., uh, as they say, the land of opportunity. Um, obviously, it's been, a, it's been a great journey since then in the world of starting from uh, writing uh, like literally monolithic applications, which was... Uh, there was an application which was consuming um, uh, uh, consuming um, uh, medical images and processing it, allowing it for rotation. So it was getting used as part of, uh, used with MRIs and everything else at Philips, as in healthcare. That's where I started my career to going and building OLAP databases over a period of time to obviously the whole journey of, of DevOps that started. Um, uh, been there before even the word was coined that way, and so it's been a long journey that way through the uh, through the many many years of, of of software development. Yeah, and you you've seen quite a few uh, quite a few exits along the way. So we'll talk about that on how you know interesting that that kind of process is to not only uh, kind of give away your your baby right, but also then uh, be kind of uh, part of a universe of uh, of the acquirer where. You lose a little bit of control, and you have to uh, to find middle grounds. And and God knows that sometimes he goes well, and sometimes he doesn't. Uh, yes. And and often, yes. unfortunately, you see uh, you know large organizations buying smaller smaller companies because it seems like they they can innovate better and faster, right? And 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 God knows some big companies struggle with innovation, uh, yes. but then they also yeah. um, you know buy them for the talent. Uh, and, and then the question is, are they able to retain both uh, the culture and the talent? Which unfortunately often is is not happening, and then they have to buy another company to to keep that, that from going on, right? So it's always fun. So yes, yes, we'll talk yes. about that, of course, in the in the show because I think that's uh, that's so important. But you talked about something uh, in your opening about you know monolithic uh, stacks, and funny enough, you know, it's still the default uh, really when it comes to building software in the Department of Defense, despite us trying to really educate uh, teams on the benefit of. Uh, you know, modularity and flexibility and, and uh, Lego blocks uh, reuse, you know, you, you've seen it. Uh, and we've done a great uh, study and we have a video on that on the on the show uh, about SpaceX versus F-35, where, you know, SpaceX has 80% of their um, re code of reuse across the nine platforms. And you have uh, F-35 with barely 4% shared with F-22s yeah. uh, with, uh, you know, 4,000 developers at F-35 and only 200 at uh, SpaceX, so you can see also yeah. kind of the the fifty percent uh, defect rate of uh, F thirty five, effectively meaning that we have two thousand developers use less. So uh, a lot of uh, great lessons learned when it comes to uh, you know being more nimble and flexible yeah. and, and yeah. decoupling teams and uh, delivering at the pace of relevance. So tell us a little bit about how things are evolving between this monolithic world and microservices. Absolutely. Absolutely. So so it's so, it's it's. So it's it's funny because as uh, as you know, as you go through uh, the journey in terms of uh, all the various things that I've done in terms of software development itself, 
things have changed so much. Like I was talking about, I was in the healthcare uh, business that way, writing software. And we literally used to write matrix manipulation services that way to actually go and rotate images and, and annotate some of the things and like go through the whole, we used to build all of those things as in code, right? C++ mm -hmm. code at that time as in libraries that way, right? That means that now no one ever does it, right? Meaning all of those libraries are pretty much available for <laughs> plugging in, in a lot of cases. And then we started to look at services that become available. I still remember writing a whole bunch of code to build um, uh, SMS messaging, uh, PBXs that way, uh, and VoIP gateways that were getting built as, as, as gateways that could actually be sold to customers that way, right? Things have evolved a lot now. Now nobody goes and writes any of those things. You have Twilio as a service, which is an entirely API-driven service that's available from the get-go, right? So things have evolved to an extent where a lot of these have become services that are available to you to access. And, and, and this is from an external consumption perspective. And then, of course, there are lots and lots of libraries that are getting plugged in. And, 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 and that means that they're going to introduce lots of vulnerabilities, which we'll talk about along the way, which everybody <laughs> knows. But nowadays, the percentage of code that you actually write is pretty less. You are actually looking at reusing a lot of the software. It's blue code, and right? A lot of blue code. Exactly. And, 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 and that's the beauty of it. That means that a lot of the businesses can come online because at the end of the day, a business is being built or an application is being built so that you're serving your customers with that, right? That means that if you can actually do the least amount of work to actually go build it and release the application or release the API online, the better the business is, right? And that goes to actually the crux of what we talk about as microservices and everything else, because the whole idea is that how can you actually improve the business on a continuous basis so that you're gaining more customers, you're gaining more market share, and of course, you are bringing in the revenue based on that, right? This is where most businesses are built. And all of these businesses, if they have to continue to kind of evolve their functionality on a, on a continuous basis that way, that means that then how do you know where these applications are getting deployed, how they're getting used? And, and that means that like as, the, as, as, as you look at all of these services that are coming online on a continuous basis, in a lot of cases, you don't even have control over of how much of this code is getting deployed, right? Because businesses wanted this. Businesses wanted that you can fix the bugs for, for your customers much quicker. You can go and release new functionality on a hourly basis or a minute level basis, if not on a daily basis. That means that how do you enable the development teams to make it happen. And the way to do that was to start to separate the, uh, uh, separate the functionality itself and the concerns associated with it so that the ownership can be driven across the functionality that's being delivered. And this is where the microservices started to come in, where you are given a set of functionality that you're supposed to be responsible for. Let's say as an example, you are a set of reporting services that are, that, that, that are getting used or a set of inventory services in an e-commerce business that you're getting used. They're kind of separating a lot of these as, as individual functional units so that they can go faster and faster and deliver that part of the functionality. But what happened was because it was no longer a monolith that could be looked at holistically and said, okay, this is how the application is. I understand that application. Now what has happened is how do you understand all of these various sets of applications to kind of come up with a way of 
uh, of holistically understanding understanding these applications um, is, is is obviously a challenge now, right? And mm -hmm. that is the the evolution is happening, but at the same time, people are struggling with getting a full on insight of how some of these broader things are coming together that way, right? One of one of the uh, uh, if you look at the older technologies again, right? It's there is a limited set of of um, of failure modes that they can have. That means that there used to be longer QA cycles that you could test all of these things holistically, right? But in the microservices world now, things have changed significantly where all of these things need to be continuously tested, continuously understood. That means that the contracts between these microservices need to be continuously understood and the contracts between the APIs as part of these services need to be understood, right? So the the evolution that way has 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 uh, has has been very very interesting because the, uh, the 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 broader idea is that all of these distributed microservices that are deployed, the managing them and understanding them is very very hard, right? That because again one 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 thing the reason one of the reasons why it is hard is because you don't necessarily know the dependencies in advance. Because if you are actually putting out a config service as an example, and you want a whole bunch of services to be using it, you've published a contract on an API, and that's all you know. There could be multiple services who are actually consuming it, right? But also on the same time, that means that if you are building a, 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 an authorization service that is getting consumed by so many people, how do you ensure that the failure on the authorization service is not impacting so many of the other services that are depending on it, right? So how do you kind of think through all of these things is where we are and there is a lot of work that's being done around that as part of the overall DevSecOps as in a, as in a, uh, as in a movement, if you want to call it that, but also the life cycle of it. But obviously my interest is a lot more in securing these microservices and securing these APIs. Um, and because my, of course, my background is also in how do we ensure that the failure of these microservices in terms of, in terms of the, 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 the failure due to errors or due to performance is something that, 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 that obviously uh, concerns me as an engineer, but the focus as, as uh, traceable as a company and myself is, is a lot more to do with security. Yeah, it's it's so interesting, right? Because like anything in life, you know, there's uh, everything that comes with a lot of great improvements, great also a lot of challenges, right? So you yes. you describe kind of the the issues when it comes to to training teams moving from monolithic to uh, microservices. In fact, you know, we're working on a video uh, about the strangler pattern and how to understand domain driven design and test driven development and and really how to cut monolithic rights because if you're tightly coupled, you create more issues than you're solving by by cutting it uh, wrong, and then and of course you you mentioned kind of the uh, the maturity of of understanding the testing and the continuous delivery aspect, but then you know the 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 need of having the global visibility on what's going on and and the complexity of the stack becomes even you know uh, uh, harder and harder to maintain, and 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 you talk about the cyber issues. There is also like you know, tremendous issues when it comes to scaling and orchestrating and making sure the stack is up and running and, and crashing and 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 healthy. And, and that's where, you know, cattle versus pet, and we, we've done a video on that, and, and Kubernetes and, and containers have been kind of a massive enabler for teams, you know, struggling to, to do that. A lot of people kind of pushing uh, back against uh, microservices and, and modular architecture are often um, badly trained uh, to understand how to solve these problems. You talked about kind of the the API side of the uh, 
the services and how they have contracts and and uh, agreement in place to make sure they're not breaking things and and you know with new releases and and you know um, making sure they're not disrupting the the performance of the application and the security of the application. How do you see with kind of that adoption of of APIs at scale now, really at the broader scale than ever before, both you know third party APIs but also APIs within the organization itself? How are those APIs changing? Yeah, yeah. So if you, if you look at, uh, first of all, every business today, if not all of them, definitely a majority of them are API-driven businesses today, right? That means that anytime a business, a new functionality be, needs to be released, they are driven through these APIs. That means that either new version of those APIs are coming or new functionality is being introduced as part of the services that are powering those APIs, right? That means that they are the most important piece of, of a service today in, in most of the businesses. But the way they are changing is not just in terms of the code, the way they're also changing in the type of protocols that are getting introduced as part of that. Because before, in a lot of cases, what stopped with what what, what was what was there with SOAP as a protocol, which kind of started for 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 a lot of these, um, a lot of the services that way that got built. Then there was the RESTful services that came online. There is gRPC services, GRPC, which exist yeah. today uh, as they're communicating. And then GraphQL services. There are tons mm -hmm. of them that are getting built as part on top of GraphQL as, as, as a service. And you had encryption on top, complexifying all that, that stuff. Exactly, right? So, so that means that in a lot of cases, what happens is in most of the businesses, first, they don't even know where these APIs exist, right? Because they are like they're growing mushrooms, as I say, right? Meaning it's there <laughs> everywhere. So in a lot of cases, they don't even have an idea as to one, where they are deployed. Second, how they are getting used. And third, what is the data that's even flowing through all of these guys, right? So that means that for, for you to basically, like as they say in security, if you don't know uh, where things are, then how are you even going to protect them that way, right? That's So the challenge there is not so much about there are APIs. The challenge is that they're growing and also you don't have any idea of where they exist, right? And before, if you look at a discovery, lot of this, right? right? Yeah, the discovery part of it, because the because without actually having a fundamental understanding of the of the of the API landscape within your organization itself, then you cannot protect it, right? But, right. but in terms of the changing of the APIs itself, there are there are two aspects to that. One is uh, when a new functionality gets introduced, typically a newer version of that API comes online. But what most of the times happens is because these APIs, similar to microservices and the interaction between those microservices, APIs are the services that are getting exposed to the outside world. As an example, let's say just take Twilio as an example, which is entirely an API-driven business. All of the APIs have different versions associated with them because there are older consumers of those APIs. And, and there could be APIs which are using different sets of parameters for those APIs. That means that you as a business still need to maintain a lot of these things and also need to retire some of these things over a period of time and also need to maintain documentation on this so that you know how they are getting actually used. Now, in the world of APIs, when these are continuously changing, how are you going to maintain them? How are you going to know 
who is using what businesses are exposing it what types of mobile applications what types of b2b uh, customers are actually using these apis right and that is what the challenge is because the apis internally are changing because they're releasing new functionality or fixing issues and everything else but there's a lack of understanding of how they're actually getting used and how the that usage is impacting these changes that are happening right and that's what is key to kind of understand uh, in 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 terms of the uh, in terms of the uh, in terms of the usage itself right the the, the the bottom line there is that apis of today are are much more uh, deeper um, uh, and and they're much more wider deployed and also they're very diverse because of the um, because of the various set of use cases that are that are that are built on it right one last thing around that, when you talk about APIs before, this is where the, um, um, and again, the, the the perimeter before used to exist, where like, okay, if you protect this edge layer of it, everything is great. But today, that's not the case. There is an entire class of East-West APIs because mm -hmm. most of these microservices are deployed. Uh, a lot of too. them are deployed internally, and there is the edge set of it. And those internal APIs are actually carrying a lot of, the functionality of what is getting exposed outside, but there's a lot of interaction that happens internally within the services as well. So how do you kind of start to track these East-West APIs? So that's another set of changes that are coming together, right? So yeah, yeah. so it's, it's, it's a very so fast changing and, and complex problem. You know, I, I remember talking uh, three years ago to Netflix when they had, you know, 700 microservices yeah. At Netflix, but they 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 track the twenty services really needed to watch a movie. The rest would be cached or um, right. effectively down with no impact to watching movies. But they right. they call the the twenty the the core you know the critical I guess um, yeah. services yeah. that really you couldn't do business uh, without those. And and that's where they obviously had a very uh, a stringent chaos engineering to see yeah. how the system would behave. You know uh, if if some of these were going down and how to quickly recover. Uh, from these disasters, and that's yes. uh, that's a massive lesson learned. Even in DoD, when you look at uh, you know the complexity of weapon systems, you yeah. know the the, the ability we we've seen uh, uh, so far in the first uh, three years, uh, moving to DevSecOps, we've seen uh, uh, an increase to uh, to the the mean time to recovery uh, yeah. twenty six hundred times faster uh, yeah. thanks to you know Kubernetes and containers. So that's that yeah. alone could save lives. I'm with you. I'm with you. Like again, uh, going back years now, um, uh, Netflix uh, uh, early on uh, was one of the earlier customers for for us at, at AppDynamics. And uh, even if if you now if you Google AppDynamics and Netflix, you will get a, a a chart which was a whole bunch of JVMs connected to each other. And mm -hmm. uh, as the business grew, they started with 10 JVMs, went to 1,000 to 10,000 JVMs and, and <laughs> kind of pushed the limits even of what, what AppDynamics as a company could do and a product could do, right? So it, it's, it's, it was so interesting to see the changes that happened within Netflix as they started to support more and more customers and how connected it was. A single call, when, when, when people look at API calling, a single login call actually coming into at the edge makes so many different calls in the background 
right? Mm -hmm. Starting with multiple authentication slash authorization services to audit services to to user um, uh, user info services. That way, there are tons Mm -hmm. of things that happen in the background, right? It's a single call at at the front end, right? But now, if you think of it, that means that any one change on any of these other APIs in the background could have an impact actually on the external API, right? And right. a lot of cases, uh, like this one happened uh, pretty recently with all the log for shell aspects of it. People were like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm just protecting my edge and I'm secure. Guess right. what? The edge may not be doing much, may not even be a Java application, but there are tons of services in the background, which are Java applications. They potentially could be serializing data, potentially exposing you to log for shell as, as a as, as a vulnerability, right? So who is going to kind of look at all of these things end to end, right? That's where mm-hmm. APIs are not just, okay, I'm changing it at the edge. I have full control over it. I'm okay. Even that's not possible when you're talking larger and larger organizations like Netflix and everybody else today who's a technically rich organization that way, right? Yeah, so I, I guess that kind of leads me to the, the next question, right? Which is, you know, when you, you started to, to design the, the traceable AI mm-hmm. capability, Clearly, the, the first step, like you said, to protect something, you have to know they exist. So you yep. you start with the discovery stuff. Uh, and as you said, there is so many APIs, both internal east-west traffic, but also uh, you know uh, third-party APIs you may, may be using. And, and depending on, uh, yeah. particularly when you start consuming a lot of maybe too many <laughs> SaaS services, I don't know. Uh, but what, what do you think are the, the challenges when you build that, that capability to really bring that kind of holistic API discovery at scale that works for for many organizations, not just one startup in a vacuum. Yep, 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 yep. So I think there is there is two parts to this, right? There are a lot of uh, uh, legacy services as well within organizations. Then mm-hmm. there are modern services which are more CI/CD compliant, and then they're going through this, right? So the challenges happen in both of those. In the case of legacy services, all they know is there are gateways through which the gate uh, the data is flowing through, or the APIs are being accessed. It could be Apigee, Kong, whatnot, as an as an as an set of gateways, right? That means that you need to kind of understand uh, those APIs fundamentally, right? Discovery. When you look at API discovery, there are a few aspects of it that you need to understand. One, you need to first of all know where these APIs exist, how they're being accessed. The second thing that you need to know, what is the configuration associated with these APIs? Are you being compliant with those? With, with, uh, are, you, are you making sure that you can do an audit to make sure that they're compliant that way to the best practices? The, mm-hmm. the third aspect that you need to know is in a lot of cases, there is no documentation even associated with these APIs. That means that you don't even know, have an idea as a security team in a lot of cases, you don't know what type of data is flowing through them. Uh, is it mm-hmm. sensitive, not sensitive? Who is accessing all of that data, right? And then you, the next part of it that you don't know is who are the users of these APIs? What are the types of users that are actually coming in? What types of mm-hmm. roles do they have access to, right? A lot of these things is part of the basic discovery that in, in a lot of cases doesn't exist, right? So it's very important to kind of understand the understand the APIs holistically by first discovering them as in naming them and also understanding what type of APIs they are. Are they, as I said, what type of protocol um, uh, are they are they um, uh, are they being used for? 
uh, as I said, the second one is a config. Third one is the sensitive data as it's flowing through, understanding what type of data is, is kind of um, flowing through and categorizing them into, uh, it could be like a healthcare organization where you're categorizing PII and PHI data, or it could be a PCI and PII data, going through those categorizations and understanding, right? Then understanding- And you're dealing with the, the crypto, right? You, the payload could be encrypted too. So exactly. Exactly. So, so there are cases where the payloads are encrypted. So how do you tap into them such that you understand the basics about that API? So there is innovation that had to be that had to happen there as well, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you're absolutely right because in a lot of cases, uh, and then also there is the MTLS aspect of it, which is that means that service right. to service itself, there is a lot of there, there is encryption that exists as part of that. So how do you discover those as an APIs, right? Uh, recently, I, I I I heard you talking uh, with the uh, with the Tetrate guys about the service mesh mm -hmm. and everything else, right? A great conversation. There are certain cases where they're trying to solve some of these things at a pure data level by by integrating right. into Martsec or whatnot, just as a as providing those WAF capabilities, right? But mm -hmm. APIs need to go beyond that. It beyond is not that, just right. about a data pattern. You need to understand how the data is getting accessed by the users and build a behavioral context around that, right? And these all things come in because if you have to go uh, um, change the way these APIs are, are, uh, are presented to the security teams to know, uh, to know the uh, posture at the end of the day, you have to go through and understand these APIs holistically, right? And that's what the whole thought process was in going and building and saying, hey, where can we get all this data from? How do we now take all these data and make sure it ties it back into the agile releases that happens because dev teams are continuously releasing? And how do you tie this as in a distributed fashion where the data can actually be flowing in from the public cloud, uh, from the public uh, access to the public API through the internal services? How is that connection and how is the data actually flowing? And also, what is the connectivity to third party services that you're accessing? Because the, the, the reality is that these APIs are not only uh, exposing themselves in a lot of cases into B2B access as an APIs, but also these APIs are accessing third-party APIs. So how do you kind of discover and say which are the third-party APIs to discover, right? So from an API perspective, Nick, it's about understanding what the edge APIs are, what the internal APIs are, which are the B2B type of APIs that are getting accessed, and then also the third-party APIs that the services are accessing, which could be numerous that way, right? So go, we need to understand all of these things holistically. And the best way to 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 show this back to to the teams is is with a graph or something that's more more visual for them to understand the, the kind of the flow and and what service talks to what and kind of the east-west, but also like you said the north uh, south traffic and maybe you know looking at egress of data uh, what what data could be sent to a, to a third party log aggregation capability yep. maybe you're consuming some other service so like visually i, I think you know if you have to list the stuff it'll yeah. be pretty difficult to do this sure. if you don't have something visual right sure sure so there are there are there are three aspects to the way i think most of the uh, most of our personas consume and that's the way i think um, uh, that's the way i think folks would consume one is yes, there is a visual way. There is there is a visual dashboard of some of these things to show the interactions and also to allow you to slice and dice because you may want to say, hey, show me only the APIs. Yeah, that me in, out, right? 
Yeah. yeah. So some form of a visual map of all of these things is one way of consuming the data where you can slice and dice the, the flow, slice and dice and understand the understand the uh, the nature of these APIs itself, right? But the other key thing that, that, that a lot of people use is to look at the API documentation itself, which can mm -hmm. be integrated as part of your CD that way. So you know that the documentation is continuously up to date. And that means that it can be downloaded as part of your GitHub repo, or you could download it from the UI because at the end of the day, it's about understanding these APIs from a discovery perspective, but also making sure you have an understanding of the documentation. Because the third mm -hmm. aspect of it there is folks want reporting, basically. They are not looking at this every single day. They just want to understand, hey, here is all my like InfoSec guys or product security guys or developers broadly that way. They want to know at the end of, uh, first of all, being alerted on anything new that came online. It could be a new API or you identified a shadow API. Uh, you identified something as, as any kind of rogue APIs that way. They want to be known of it through a report that can come, either as an alert or as a report, right? And also it could be new sensitive data types that came online, which you thought it should not be part of this API because we have we've had, um, I've talked to multiple customers where in a lot of cases, uh, they have APIs which are not supposed to be receiving certain data because they're being used by partner mm. APIs, right? They're not supposed right. to be. stuff. Right? And, and, and like, I'll, I'll give you an example. This recently happened with uh, Twitter, all right? Twitter, it used um, uh, shared the uh, the phone numbers that way, which is PII mm. information uh, based on their ads API and everything else, which they were not supposed to do that. But even Twitter didn't know that they didn't have an idea right. that, at least based on the external conversations, that they didn't have an idea that this was actually getting shared, right? And obviously, they had to pay a huge fine for it. But now if you think about it, this is happening across the board at many, many customers. They're sharing information that they're not supposed to be sharing, right? That's not part of their contracts. So how do you kind of understand this fundamentally and discover these things where this data is being accessed by this API and this API is being accessed by these set of users, right? That is what is the reporting aspects of it and the slice and dice aspects of it will come in so that they can even alert saying that if this happens again, please alert me that this data should not be or anything that's violating this data policy, go ahead and identify this as part of this API, right? So that's the that's the way I'll look at it. Yeah, I've seen also a use case where people would pass all the, the, the previous payload to the next API. And so then there would be like a massive, uh, amount of data flowing to the next API, which was of sometimes sensitive, and 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 then that would compound the problem down the road. So that's exactly. always something people don't exactly. think about. Yeah. And, and that is the fundamental difference between uh, what how how you would think of um, consider just perimeter defense with the WAF mm -hmm. or things like that, because with APIs, most of the times the API data is is actually being used across APIs in a right. legitimate way. But the challenge is that the hackers use that exact same knowledge uh, that your mobile applications or anything else use because the same right. API is exposing the the, 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 the same data and, yeah. to the hijackers as well, right? That means that they're able to kind of understand the whole, uh, uh, whole flow of the data flow, yeah. and take advantage of it, right? That means that you need to have the full-on context of when you go discover, you need to have the full-on context of what the relationships are between the data, right? So yeah, mm -hmm. you're, you're absolutely right. 
Yeah. And so that, that brings me to kind of your, your model, right? That you uh, you coined the, the shift left, uh, protect right yeah. uh, concept, yeah. which makes a lot of sense, right? In terms of how do you secure APIs? The shift left portion obviously is, you know, pushing uh, and making sure cyber is, is baked in as part of the, the CI CD process and then the protect right on the runtime side. So tell us about, that's why kind of I've been explaining to people for, for you know, five years now, with the yeah. difference for me between DevOps and DevSecOps, the SEC yeah. for me is not just, hey, I'm, I'm going to do some static analysis on my code. It's really the runtime security piece that, you know, makes it so that your, your Dev, DevSecOps platform is part of your runtime production environment. Correct, correct. Like, I, I, I think there are, uh, when you look at uh, uh, the overall approach to security, has to be something, how do you take the knowledge uh, across your SDLC uh, to, to protect yourself better, right? That means that you should understand how your APIs are actually getting built and deployed. That's where the shift left aspect of it comes in, where you're kind of looking at uh, all of the APIs to ensure the right kind of authentication and authorization mechanisms exist as part of the APIs, and you understand the configuration that's being built in as part of these APIs in your shift left as in lower environments that way so that you know the basics about your APIs. And then that is where all of the documentation can get built for your APIs. Now, the next part of it is that you need to protect against many of the zero-day uh, attacks that happen in your runtime. There, you, there, there is no way of saying that I, I've identified everything in my, in my pre-production environments, right? Because there are two reasons for that. One is the zero-day aspects of it. The second aspect of it is that not all of the right kind of tests, all of the scanning that you can do in your shift-left environments will identify all of the attacks. The simple reason is that when you look at a production environment, right, there is tons of differences between the way the data is getting access and the way the applications are being used in a production environment compared to the way they're actually being used as part of your QA environments or as part of your unit tests that are getting built, right? Yeah, that much you can emulate, right? Exactly. That means that you need to have that protection right as a strategy. But at the same time, it is not just enough just to say, I'm going to protect everything on the right side, because there are a lot of things yeah, you need that actually be cut out, right? Like, for example, if you look at the shift left, uh, uh, where it starts in the code level, as in static scanning, that happens, right? For example, Sneak has done an amazing job there in kind of making sure that a lot of the vulnerabilities can be identified in your open source libraries as part of your as part of your dev lifecycle itself, where they highlight a lot of these things. But it but that is not good enough. That is that's a very, very good start in understanding that these vulnerabilities exist in your open source code, that you have libraries that you have in, uh, or say that you have uh, that you have integrated into. But at the same time, now you need to take it to the next level. How do they actually impact at runtime, right? That is where you need to actually integrate this into your CD cycle so that you know how these vulnerabilities can be identified as part of the CD cycle. Then carry that forward into your production environments to understand now that you have identified these vulnerabilities in your static scanning and your scanning as part of your CD, now you understand how do you manage the risk at runtime? Because then based on the based on what's happening in shift life, you can now understand that the, the, the risk associated with these APIs and you need to prioritize those APIs to protect, right? This is where it's very, very important that 
risk-based vulnerability management as part of APIs is very critical here because mm -hmm. it is not, again, developers and everybody else, like everything else, there's only a limited amount of time. That means that if right. you carry around and say there are 500 or 1,000 vulnerabilities, they're only going to attack the things that are actually very highly prioritized and they can. And also that impacts the business, right? So how can you understand all of these things on your left side of it and protecting on the runtime side of it is what is very, very critical, right? The other portion of it, which I was talking about before is the documentation that comes. That means that you need to now understand which APIs are getting deployed in your production that you don't have documentation for that in your left. You have already thought that you have deprecated an API that's still getting used. How do you kind of know that, right? And then also, what is it that, for example, there may be some data that has been documented as part of your shift left process, and we think we have understood that and we have actually portrayed that. But in your production environment, there may be a parameter that's actually getting used that is not even there in the documentation because developers introduced it for whatever reason, right? Uh, so, so how do you kind of do the conformance analysis across these environments that way to understand where, where your overall security posture is, right? That's what is very, very critical. Yeah, that's that's interesting. You know, when when you mentioned kind of the the, the two sided coin, right, between the uh, the left side on the CI/CD side and the uh, the runtime piece, right, that 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 creates an additional layer of, of complexity, which is that um, these cyber products are now becoming targets, right, of malicious actors. You've seen it, of course, with SolarWinds, right? Why would you not try to hack the the cyber company that's uh, providing services to thousands of customers Correct. and then end up on the runtime production side, often with right. elevated privileges, right? To get right. more access to what's happening on runtime. And so that makes products like you guys and SNCC and others, um, you know, dozens of, of runtime uh, security stacks that we have both on the on the cloud provider side and, and just, you know, Kumei's related CNCF projects, a prime target, right? Of, of malicious actors as well. Sure, it does. And, and, and the way to think about this is in, in a lot of cases, right? it is about more of that self-healing and self-understanding of what your application does and how it does. Right. Mm -hmm. I think even like the, the way you look at whether it is us or anyone else that is that is in some cases part of a customer's environment and part of providing those services. That's where you have to be aware of the activity and the typical behavior of the application itself rather than just treating ourselves. That's where we think about the zero trust overall, right? That is something that needs to exist. It is not just enough if we say, oh, like that's what happened with SolarWinds, right? Everything, everything as part of that is kosher and we don't need to really look at anything. That's not possible, right? That means that mm -hmm. we have to seriously consider all of the components that 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 uh, that, that basically uh, uh, that are part of the organization, including the vendors that are there. Anyway, it's interesting because Tim was asking the, the question about, you know, how SolarWinds kind of uh, change the cyber, but also how, I guess, um, you know, the, 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 the issue we've seen with SolarWinds kind of happened. You know, I was in the government back then and I had uh, direct engagement with uh, the CIO and CISO and CEO of SolarWinds many, many times. In fact, I was probably one of the, uh, the, the top actors on the government side uh, during this response. Um, and I, you know, when I was listening to the briefs of, of those guys, it, it seemed to me that a lot of it had to do with pretty basic poor cyber hygiene, including you know, now using MFA on their um, 365 email uh, stuff. And, and that led to, to people getting access to emails, which then get, led to uh, people using accounts to, to get into the CICD stuff and, and their build server. And then uh, 
because they don't use any kind of uh, moving target defense and they don't uh, treat uh, their, their CI/CD as cattle. They they were able to to retain access to the build server and then inject malicious code and and so on, right? And um, you know, uh, I find sometimes the the top cyber companies or you know, well, SolarWinds they don't call themselves a cyber company, but but sure. whatever. I've I've met many other companies in cyber that have very poor cyber hygiene, right? It's kind of they they're preaching others, but they're not uh, leading the way to even use their own uh, stuff. And I, I find you know cyber companies with uh, uh, hundreds of CVs in their containers, and I'm like, how do you pick your dependency? Or we don't have a an SBOM process. We don't track that kind of stuff. I'm like, why are you a cyber company, right? So what have you put in place, you know, in Traceable to kind of look at kind of the holistic cyber? What, what do you think about what keeps you up at night when you think of dependencies of third-party open source risk of uh, a potential malicious actor getting into open source bits? So what, what, what's really a, a scary uh, thing that you think about? Sure. Uh, first of all, let me let me let me say this right. Uh, like whether it is SolarWinds or anyone in the cyber tech industry that way, right? What I can tell you because I've talked to many of these leaders over the many years, right? Their intentions always, including ours and everybody that way, is always to make sure that they're always protecting their customers, right? And ensuring that everything that they can do. They try to do it because they're all trying to do good things, right? Nobody is trying to build a company. Yeah, it's not, mal it's not malicious. Right? Sometimes it's incompetence, though, but it's not malicious. Happen. It's not malicious. I agree <laughs> with you. So, so, so yeah. I think the uh, on, on our end, of course, we take this very, very seriously, and something that uh, um, uh, something that uh, uh, that we obviously uh, have a lot of internal systems that obviously is very tough to go into here as as a conversation. But sure. what I can tell you is that in, in our case, there are two ways of looking at it. One is there are customers where, where we do offer on-prem solutions itself so that the customer owns the entire mm -hmm. um, uh, set of data that way, right? In a lot of cases that where we have um, uh, obviously provide SaaS services, there a lot of the data that we actually receive from the customers is is obfuscated so it's not necessarily that we have access to any of the data right in mm -hmm. terms of protection because there are a lot of localized decisions that get made as part of this as part of the overall platform mm -hmm. uh, now having said that we definitely take it very very seriously and there are there are we have published externally as well in terms of what all we do and how we protect uh, protect mm -hmm. ourselves and we also share that with our customers as well uh, in terms of everything that we do but honestly so transparency transparent is important right yeah it all starts with the same set of fundamentals right is mm -hmm. is basically do you understand all of your applications and apis that you're exposing and you understand all the users where they're coming from how they're accessing it right building those mm -hmm. behavioral patterns like as you said we start with the shift left aspect of it by by not just basically the static scanning aspects of it but running the right kind of tests in the pre-prod mm -hmm. environments and we go through all the same things that we are kind of talking about here right uh, because at the end of the day we are exposing those apis as well on our end Right. Yeah, it's it's you know it's interesting to see kind of groups like Lapsus right target now the, the source code side instead of the runtime side of, of companies they're trying to steal uh, both the, the source code and of course once they have the source code now they can uh, look for zero days right and, and get into right. the next uh, level and I think we're gonna see a a drastic number of, of zero days in the next few months on all the uh, the source code both on the 
the Samsung Galaxy stuff, the Microsoft stuff, the Okta stuff. I think there's going to be much yeah. more than people yeah. are thinking about. Yeah. What do you do yeah. when you think of your your Chrome Jewel, right? Your 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 software, your your code base. Um, you know, of course, people you know should be using um, MFA for their Git repo. They should yep. probably think about uh, signing comments so they track who does what and and the the kind of the 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 process of of committing code. Of course. Uh, best practice is also to have multiple set of eyes to to merge code and approve uh, big changes and things like that. What what do you recommend people when you think of of the source code side of the house? What should they think about? I think I think first of all, all of the things that you talked about, and all of obviously all the things that you do to make sure one of the one of the biggest problems that 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 uh, that any company can have is how much of their secrets are being shared in terms of i'm talking about uh, i'm talking about auth tokens and everything else mm-hmm. and and <laughs> I, I i would definitely keep an eye on some of those things right but actually let me let me look at this a little bit differently right in the set of in the modern world of apis that way this has become a little bit even more scary because you mm-hmm. don't necessarily need to have access to the code if you have an understanding of how these APIs are working, because APIs are that code pretty much in a lot of right. cases, right? That means that if you kind of know what APIs exist and how they are exposing the data and how the data is interacting between the APIs and what's the typical sequence that they get called in as an example, mm. right? you can do a lot of damage that way just with that information. Right? You don't necessarily right. need to have um, have access to the source code. In a lot of cases, right, right. you right. can just guess guess what's happening. Yeah, so so that is where I would go to protect in a lot of cases, right? And other than that, I, I think there is uh, there is a list of things that's been published in terms of everything to do from your from your um, of course all the things all the all the um, um, uh, GitHub uh, actions and GitHub uh, activities that you can actually track as part mm-hmm. of the organization in terms of the code itself is very good. All of the secrets that are published as part of that, make sure they are not published. There is zero reasons to publish them, right? Mm-hmm. And also, in a lot of cases, the open source aspect. I saw this from actually from Google, who is uh, who is who is going to be working very closely to identify all of the open source vulnerabilities yeah. to kind of start to say uh, where this is. Yeah. That, that that's pretty awesome. I think we should all be collaborating on that and supporting that, right? And so, yeah, so there are, there are lots of these things that can be done. And, and I would highly encourage anybody who's looking at APIs to start, again, ignoring traceable or not, right? It fundamentally, first, try to understand where these APIs fit in and how they're getting exposed. Because that's nowadays, you don't really need to get access to the source as long as you get access to that API, right? Right. And how it behaves. And, you, and everybody has access to that API because you're really trying to... Uh, trying to uh, expose that Make to the right. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, so I guess you know we we did talk a little bit about CI/CD and DevSecOps, but when you look specifically to traceable, yeah, where exactly in the CI/CD process do you tie back into into that process, and where do you see do you see the biggest bang for the buck? Because there's so many phases and gates in the CI/CD pipeline. Uh, many are you know. To feel good about it, right? But but yeah. maybe yeah. you don't see always like for example, you look at static analysis. I can tell you when we when you look at malicious code in nature, not not bad code, but malicious in nature, most scanner are not gonna find malicious code if it's good code, right? So yeah. so it's gonna pass the scans and and you know so something like you know uh, doing a time bomb or exfiltrating data 
yeah. very often uh, scanners are not able to recognize that kind of stuff. But Correct. when you look at traceable specifically and the API security stack you you're bringing to the table here, Correct. what what phase do you do you get involved in in, in the CI? Yeah, so we are. Um, um, so the way we look at it is we offer end-to-end -end API security, right? Introducing security as as early as you can in the STLC is key when you look at uh, anything right. as in making your making your application secure, right? We get involved at the dev and at the staging and at the production level. We are not scanning. Uh, 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 we are not doing static scanning to identify yeah, scanning of code. libraries, right? That's yeah. not where we are. We are post that. That means that we are post part that. of your CD cycle so that we know that this is what is getting deployed into dev. This is the type of data that is flowing through. And these are the APIs that exist as part of your dev as it flows from dev to staging to prod. Right. Are you and, when people, I know there was a question on Twitter, I can put it on the screen because Twitter doesn't have the option, but, um, how you know is that enabling you to to um to see potential injection you know into the what if so so i guess because you don't scan the code um are you able to find if 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 people are if if apis are compromised in terms of sql or xss injections Correct. or you just see or you just see the the calls to the api on the on the runtime side so we are looking at it on, so there are two ways that we actually think about this. One is from, from a shift left perspective, if you have a QA environment, that means that there are APIs that are running through that QA environment, that is data that is running through that QA environment, we'll be able to identify all of the vulnerabilities through that, right? Mm -hmm. The second aspect of it is that if you have an API documentation as in an open API spec that way, we'll be able to identify vulnerabilities through that as well. From a, from a shift lab perspective. But the key for us is also is the runtime protection aspect of it. The reason is that that means that we are seeing certain things in your production environments, which may not be in your QA environments. Mm -hmm. That knowledge then is gonna come back to tell you that here is the type of data that we saw in your production environment. Here is the type of APIs that we saw, which you did not have in your QA environments. That means that that cycle is what is very, very critical, right? Because mm -hmm. it's not enough, I don't think, we can survive uh, going forward from a product security and DevSecOps perspective if we treat these as isolated environments. They are not. Similar to how DevOps and the whole CI CD cycle works, that there is always this continuous feedback loop because people keep right. uh, deploying into production and reverting things back, right? That is the, that's the feedback loop that happens all the time, right? Why not in security? Because yeah. that's key. Right? In security, that has never happened. Let's say we treat these as like I ran my scan in my in my uh, in my uh, in my dev environment, so I'm good. Yes, right. sure, that part of it is good. But what if production is getting used differently? How do you yeah, how do you them, feed back that data really, back to the dev teams? Yeah, that feedback is what is very very important, and and that's the uh, so that means that we are there across the pipeline, right? But it, starting from the CD aspects of it. And not as part of your, uh, not of, as part of your static test. Well, you can you can of answer my next question pretty yeah. much because that was the what can we learn from production environment and bring it back to the <laughs> to the dev, dev life cycle. But if you, yeah. I guess, anything you you had to uh, to add to that to that piece, like you know, uh, yeah. how do people really do it? And and do you see like SRE teams and and development teams having to do a better job at uh, collaborating? Yes. So so I think see. The, the idea is that 
from a from a QA environment or pre-production environments that way, there is always that idea that they want to mimic as much of the real user behavior as possible. But the reality is the production environment is where the where a lot My of the traffic are going to be too, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and that's where a lot of the, uh, the hacker activity exists as well, right? That means mm -hmm. that now you will need to bring all of these into your pre-production environment. And one of the key things there is that helps you prioritize as well. Because as I was saying before, at the end of the day, there's only a limited time and a limited set of things that, are, that any developer or a product security engineer can actually look at, right? That means that now you can actually prioritize some of the fixes to be done based on mm -hmm. that context, that shared context that way. And the shared context, as well as the exploitability factor of those APIs itself by understanding which of them are being accessed externally or only internally. What's the data of sensitivity that exists? What is the level of sensitivity that exists on that data? What are the types of authentication that are getting exposed in various sets of environment, right? And also you're trying to understand what is the volume of traffic that is seen and who are the users and what types of roles that they're accessing. Because in the QA environment or in the, in the, on the dev part of it may, may not have all of those things. You may not even be, in a lot of cases, you may be exposing an API that's the most used API, but the testing of that is weak that way, right? So how do you kind of bring that knowledge? Right? And that's where I think the, the whole aspect of taking the data and the threats that actually exist on endpoint in the production environments and starting to bring that to do the right kind of testing from a security perspective in the pre-production environments is very, very key. That means that you can actually prioritize the fixes that need to happen. But also that you can do, as, as we were talking earlier, a risk-based vulnerability management associated with this but also risk-based protection as well. So you know which are the most riskiest that way as an APIs. Mm, interesting. And did you see kind of that feedback loop requiring humans in the middle or ideally kind of the tools will be able to feedback to the development side without having humans in production having to share things with the development teams? Yeah, no, I, I, I think uh, no, if, if humans need to be involved to share the information between environments, then it's, it's, it's going to be as similar to the issue that we run into where the documentation is not up to date, right? Mm -hmm. So the whole thought but process that, is like, yeah. yeah, it's a tool going to be able to consume data from various environments and how can that be shared with each other? But there are, of course, you need to take into consideration where there are, there are privacy issues in terms of what data can be shared between pre-production and production environments, right? Mm -hmm. That's where all of the smarts need to come about what is the type of data that can be shared and how it can be shared? It is not like if there are two environments who are who are exactly sharing all of the information. It's about the relevant information shared in the right format with mm -hmm. the left as well as the right, right? That's the key. Yeah, we have the, the, the component issue in DoD where, where the development environment is sometimes unclassified and the, yep. the, the production environment is classified and you usually cannot, or very difficult to bring any kind of data back down Exactly. Uh, we, we kind of negotiated to bring maybe some stuff like error codes and and bugs exactly. and issues, you know, but exactly. without without any kind of uh, classified data. But you bring up a good point, right? There is there is still a human in the loop to approve certain things that can mm -hmm. exist. Not that we have it today, but that's something definitely that can exist as part of the tool mm -hmm. to to yeah. make this in such a way that the the human in the loop is the one who's going through an approval process, which kind right. of helps with the audit aspect of it as well. Right, right. 
So um, we got we got a lot of questions from the public, but I, I I had to ask you that question as a, as a founder myself and having sold a few companies as well. How yeah. did you manage to take uh, uh, yeah. you know two member of startups to large distributed teams, and what were kind of the challenges you faced? Yeah, so I think I'm I'm going to speak generically on this based on like many of the startups that I talked to today as well, mm -hmm. uh, and and of course the past experiences that way and everything else, right? So the the way at least I've always looked at it is in is in three parts, right? Which is um, people, product, and process. Right? Mm -hmm. as, in, as in the three piece, that's the way I've always looked at most of these like things. Marcus Limones, he has the same. The same <laughs> Marcus is the same. And I think for me, the, 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 the people aspect of it is, is what is core to the core to the success, right? And why, why I say that is the first 10 people that you bring into the organization are the key to the organization. So you mm -hmm. generally, what, what, what I have at least done is the first 10 people, because they form the core and they form the culture of the organization. Right. Because one of the things, activities that I've always liked to follow is on day zero and day one is you mm -hmm. form what are the key values that you want to stick to, right? Like, like some of the values that, that I've always had is in terms of the internal team is the collaboration and the mutual respect aspect of it, right? Those two mm -hmm. are very key when it comes to building a very strong team, right? And, and to begin with, like for, first of all, let's, taking Traceable itself, we were born uh, during the pandemic. Right. And that yeah. means that, that even that though we changed a lot of things, huh? It changed a lot of things, right? That means that it became even more critical of the type of people that you can bring in. It is not necessary that you should have worked with all of these people in the past, but you need to understand are there a shared set of values that you can bring associated with these people, right? That's where I would start first. So, so because for mm -hmm. me, the first 10 people are the people who are going to bring in the next 100, the next 100 other people are going to bring in the next thousand, right? That's the way it continues as you go build the organization. So I would build more of the way at least I've done here is that build more of a localized team to begin with, because as a, as a local startup, it's very, very hard to say, I'm going to have a distributed team from the get-go because mm. you need to have certain core fundamentals built out as part of this, as in a, uh, to, 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 go, to, to go build a, a larger organization in the long run, right? So from a people perspective, you as a, as a founder and, and early engineer that way, you will have to spend all the time in hiring. If, if, uh, <laughs> if honestly, at the end of the day, if you walk away saying, I talked to 50 people today and I was able to convince five of them to come talk to me further about the, about the company and get to talk to the engineers, you actually have won because it takes such it takes a lot of effort to bring in people. It's body, it's body, yeah, you need somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like, and that pipeline, you need to, you need to, uh, like, I'll, I'll tell you this, right? Uh, the pitch that you give for the first time, honestly, before even talking to investors or anybody, I would talk to people, right? Mm. Like, try to hire them first. If you can convince them and hire them, then you can convince an investor to invest in you. Right? That's the way right. I honestly look at it, because they, 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 the type of questions that come from them, especially in a market where where there is lots of opportunity in this market in IT it might be different in other businesses. But yeah, for yes. this, no yes. doubt. Yeah. Yes. And so 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 I think building the team, that, that initial team is very, very key. 
the other part of it in terms of the values that we were talking about right uh, I, I base the philosophy always on a very simple one which is anybody who comes in whether they are they are an engineer or a, or any team member or an advisor or anybody that way the concept is that it's your company you're building it's not it's not a it's not mine it's not a founder's company or something like that. it's your company because at the end of the day you are investing your time into making it a success and the reason why it's it's your company is important is that means that there is a level of transparency and empowerment that exists as part of it because it mm-hmm. means that you know what's the right thing to do right you exactly have an idea about as long as the core vision has been agreed on and the mission is right for us right you just go because you are invested in it right and the way to do that as an empowerment i think that goes to building stronger teams that way is have we have engineers for example and i've always had that is whether you have zero years or 25 years of experience you have that impact broader impact like we have uh, fresh interns coming in who are shipping products who are shipping actually yeah. code that are being used by customers pushing right? the production the first day i think whatever company was doing yeah. exactly so so th- yeah. this is I, i think that forms the core right in building that initial culture that way in terms of uh, in terms of um, uh, in terms of uh, bringing the right people in right mm. but always try to keep the bar high that way right don't try to uh, i know the market can be tough and everything else right but you will build your so own you don't, you don't want to settle for the, the, i know sometimes unfortunately you, you you take the the best of the least bad right it doesn't mean it's uh, it's a good right so. correct correct you 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 have to have that bar very high and also you will start to figure out your own metrics over a period of time right as i said it's a funnel hiring is a funnel and people is where everything starts that's why i'm talking about the people mm-hmm. a lot because that's where everything starts and and make sure that make sure that the, the first set of people are good but at the same time mm-hmm. i'll tell you this you will make mistakes i i can guarantee you that you will what's make a, what's a, what's a good ratio i guess when do you know you you're messing up too much like on uh, the, the first 10 the first 10 how many stick i i think for the first 10 uh, there are there are there are two different reasons why things don't work out right one you decide that the 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 talent that you thought existed for whatever reason is not there or the commitment or the passion that you thought they're going to bring to the table is not there either because it was a wrong fit or maybe because you sold them wrongly or you you kind of gave them the information that maybe it was not valid that's where mm. i always say that don't try to sell make sure that you are fully open with them about everything because otherwise you're going to suffer because hey, they're going to come for the month then they're going to leave yeah. the second yeah. reason why most, sometimes what happens is when there are there, there have been there have been uh, even even my own experience now where there has been like uh, two or three of them who came in and they left to start their own ventures which is yeah. a good thing for them because they felt that they learned certain things for the first six months a year and they felt that okay now they can take this themselves they can mm. do something else better which is great there's nothing wrong with that for them right but but those are the two reasons kind of hard awakening though but yeah that's good that's good think, but 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 honestly <laughs> i think we should be open to that right <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah for sure it, for sure my my belief is pretty simple right as long as as long as the time they spent here they were improved as an individual when they left yeah i think we have done our job right that's all yeah. we can expect right so i think from a people perspective those are some of the things that that are that are uh, that, that so are so how many out of 10 you didn't even remember like out of 10 what's yeah. fair versus problematic 
I think if you if you succeed in keeping a uh, uh, 70 75 percent of that for the first uh, year, I think you've yeah. succeeded, right? Mm. And uh, and I think uh, uh, I will be very honest. Uh, every company differs, obviously, right? Uh, the the reason why it is uh, why it is the case in a lot of cases is that if you have done 75, in a lot of cases you can get up to 80 to 90 as long as yeah. you're you're engaging with the right people. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where take the time, uh, take the time to bring that core team together, because what are the, 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 the hardest roles when you look at the top to the first 10? What are the hardest role to hire for? Is it in the sell side? I, I, for me, the tech was always easy to hire, but the yeah. the sales yeah. was so painful. Yeah, no, I think uh, uh, the, the my, my belief is that the uh, you are the first sales guy. Right. As, yeah. As, uh, you will no, have sure. to do all. <laughs> You're not of the a sales day, You shouldn't be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Absolutely. So you will do a lot of the selling to begin with, and by the time the first sales guy comes in, uh, it'll take a bit of a time that way, right? And this is where again. So you don't uh, think you have a sales guy in the first ten? I, I the way I would work, and this is where um, uh, meaning uh, I, I don't want to plug someone on your show that way as an example, but I'll give you there are VCs, right? And again, yeah. people can guess who uh, my favorite VC is because they invested in Facebook <laughs> that way. But if you ignore that, like I'll say, unusual VC was 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 one of our first investors, right? What they have done, and many others are doing it, right? What they have done is they have created a, a, they call it a gap program as an example, a get ahead program, I think it is. The, the concept is that you don't necessarily need to build everything of a, non, a non-product function within the organization to begin with. Go mm-hmm. bring some of these very rich, experienced people, people who have uh, built right. sales for MongoDB, built sales for other organizations. Go bring them in more to work with you for the first three months to six months to go build some of these processes in place. Right. right. Uh, yes. In some cases, you may like them so much that you try to convince them to come and work for you. That's a different story. Right. right? But at the same time, uh, my belief is that you are the sales guy first and you go and sell it. But mm-hmm. try to take help from 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 someone that that is already an investor in you who can actually take you to the next level. Right. That's my my suggestion would be for anything non-product to begin with. So how, right? how early do you do you get your first uh, run of funding? So of course, uh, again, the market has changed and things have changed as well now. But, but, but is it is it actually really? Do you feel the already the recession kind of happening? I I would not go and I get I, I think that's way above my paycheck to kind of say yeah. whether a recession is happening or but not. You but what still, I, well, I mean, well, at least you feel something. It, yes, but at the same time, the funding environment has changed. The funding environment right. has changed to back to the fundamentals that way, right? As in building a solid company for the long run. You can no mm-hmm. longer go uh, un, uh, unless you have done certain things in the past where you've been successful. You can no longer go with just a simple deck and say, yeah, I want uh, $10 million to go build a company that's that that's going to take me a, a, whatever, a couple of years to go build, right? Mm-hmm. People are expecting that that there are certain metrics that you go through. So, even so in realistic numbers. <laughs> It's 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 more of more of uh, when I say back to the fundamentals, right? It's more of thinking about revenue as the key number that you can go raise mm-hmm. money with, right? And when I say like pre-seed and seed, of pre-seed course, is, pre-seed and seed, of course, is always the case where where 
where there are obviously um, very early in the game, right? And that is when you go and make sure that the idea is solid. And I would recommend people to go race at that point, unless mm. they can bootstrap everything themselves and they are like uh, uh, eating out of your um, uh, noodles, uh, like we used to do in the university, uh, the, the ramen noodles kind of thing, unless you want to do that and just go. Yeah only two people and make things happen, right? Which which is definitely possible. Uh, I mm -hmm. would say the seed is definitely something that they should raise if they believe in the solid idea and if they believe that they can accelerate the, the development aspect of it, right? Beyond that, I think there is now, yeah, everybody talks about it around, hey, you need to have a much longer runway because there is, the, <laughs> there is all of the things going on, but ignoring all that, the fundamentals are still the same go after the revenue aspects of it, go after the customer yeah. validation aspects of it. Right? Break even, it's break even yeah. is the foreign concept to companies nowadays. It's, it's, <laughs> I've, I've, I've never raised money and I, you know, for me it was always making, you know, breaking even and I was funding the stuff and it, it's just interesting how people completely forgot that, hey, you can actually make money and, and break even, you know, absolutely. and actually even absolutely. have profits. <laughs> absolutely. But I think it's all about how you want to scale the company to yeah. what level you want to sure. take it, right? That's when you raise the yeah. money when you know that there is... Yeah. Yeah, there is next, something next of a chance of scaling it right to the next level, yeah. right? And do, and, do you and, think some yeah. some of the, the the rounds you've seen uh, in in the last three years, you've seen a little bit of disconnect between kind of the valuation that companies were getting and and the actual delivery of value? Yeah, I mean there, there has been. I, I think see in 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 my head at least, valuation is just a, a, a it's just part of a milestone, right? <laughs> it's it's something to be of course uh, to be uh, to be um, uh, proud of because rarely companies even succeed getting to an A round, that, yeah. right? If someone gets to a B or a C or a D or an you F, just got the B at what, what was the valuation over five hundred million, right? So you did pretty well. A little bit less than that, but yes, we we, we, we yeah. did we did we did decently well there. But but as I said, it's about it's not about the the valuation. Uh, the, the simple reason there is that it is a milestone, right? Because valuations only um, uh, only matter as long as you're hitting the right revenue numbers. You're making your customers successful, building the right mm -hmm. product, right? That's what it's going to be about, right? You build the right product, satisfy your customers, uh, and and uh, get the get the revenue that is needed. Automatically, the valuations will flow, right? Yes, they may not be what what to say like crazy valuations that people were expecting maybe even six months one year ago but 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 definitely um the valuations are going to be there for the right companies i don't think that's going to change that fundamental yeah. hasn't changed right that's but yeah there has been crazier things that have happened in the last yeah there uh, are a lot of crazy things in this world so that, that's fair right absolutely absolutely but i, I, I guess you know the, the the question also when it comes to uh to revenue right yeah. um as you know, I'm on the board of several companies. In fact, full disclosure, I'm on the advisory board of Traceable. But I have people on the show regardless. There's no payment for the show. So yeah. I try to be very um, open to anybody. And in fact, we even have competitors and people of all breed coming to the show. So, But uh, one of uh, the companies I'm helping, I'm not going to say the name because we have a disagreement on one thing. And I, I love for you to settle the, the case, right? <laughs> he, he, th that person is, is, is kind of... Um, you know, pushing the fact that uh, because the product is not perfect, right? It's pretty early, right? Let's say they are a year and a half of development, which is pretty strong. They, I think it's good enough, but, you know, he, he thinks it's not good enough. And maybe it's just a matter of like aiming for perfection forever, you know, which, you know, is also scary, right? 
And yeah. he's, he thinks until he gets to that point, right? And the point is almost like this um, weird uh, uh, movable point. But but he's, sure. he's, he's saying until he gets to that point, he doesn't want to charge you know the first uh, engagement so 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 all the proof of all the the pocs uh, that he has with with uh, prospects and customers i guess uh, they are free customers which for me is a non-starter i i just i've never i, I hate all of it uh i never actually had a, a free customer i give heavy discounts maybe but I, I i feel like you need to have the pain right to to be a good um first early adapter adopter and if you don't if you don't feel any pain of on the financial side I, I would argue you're not a customer anyway so uh what what do you think about at what point do you start charging for the product when you start building yeah. a startup or do you just start right away like i i, I always started right away but yeah what, what do you yeah. think uh, i agree with you um uh i would like again ignoring the discounts aspects of it that that's yeah. that's definitely something which is very different right Sure. You need to start charging for it if the customer is deriving value from it. That's the key, yeah. right? If the customer is deriving value for it, then honestly, you should charge for it from day one. Because yeah. the, one, of the, one of the difficulties that everybody has is that how do you build out um, uh, the whole pricing and packaging aspects of it that way, right? That confusion will always exist. And believe me, it doesn't matter how, how many times you've done or how many, uh, how many things you have gone through, you will always have because that's the most difficult part. But at the same time, you would start selling from day one. You would, you would have them pay from day one. The reason it, is it, that- It's something, right? It has to be something. It has to be something because otherwise, how are you going to determine the value is continuously being derived? Because that is the only metric. Because the moment you... The rest is the win. The rest is the win, yeah. Here's the thing. Ask the customer to sign off on a $200 a check for right. you, $1,000, depending on what the value is, right? Sure. That's when the customer will go, ah, that's interesting. Is it mm -hmm. giving me value, right? Till then yeah, you haven't... That scares me when they don't even have the discussion too, right? It's like, no, it's like, well, you know, I can just play with the stuff because it's free, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because see, I'll, one, one thing I'll tell you, right? I Meaning, every one of our customers has built our product today. Every one of them, right? Right. They have been, uh, they they have been exactly. very, very much part of the entire product building. But they've all paid for it. The reason why yeah. they paid for it is because they believe in the value that the product right. is going to give them, right? If there is no value that's offering them, you may give them. Uh, tons of support. You may give them the best product, but they don't care. Right? That means yeah. that they are not going to pay for it. The moment they Skin pay the for game. it, Skin it means the that they're deriving value. Otherwise, they won't pay just because yeah. a, a, a Nick is a good guy. They're not going to pay you that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just so I'm gonna I'm gonna take the I'm gonna cut the video and I'm gonna send Please. him the your answer. So maybe yeah, I'm not yeah, the yeah, only yeah, one yeah, trying yeah. to convince him. And it's it's also interesting because it's been a year and a half, so it's not a you know it's a lot of development. I mean, it's Correct. solid stuff, you know. So I'm Correct. like, you know, if if I got excited enough to become an advisor, you probably got enough to to have people pay for the stuff. You know what I mean? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And, and and the other thing, people always have this thing, which which uh, which some of the younger companies that I've talked he's, to, he's actually people. old, by the way, but that's a different problem. <laughs> some some of the younger companies <laughs> ask me that way is. Oh, do I go public with this or do I not go public? Oh, yes. Yeah, they think of the exit before even building a product, huh? No, no, no. What I mean public is as in like, oh. uh, as in go live, oh, as, oh, as, as all the stealth was oh, a stealth, stealth. Stealth, yeah. 
That's a new thing. I never thought of stealth before too. I never. Yeah, no, I have only two simple metrics there, right? You are in stealth only because Because if you feel that you can do all the, you can do all the fundraising in the background, you can do all the hiring in the background, you don't need anything, then stay in stealth as long as you're getting the customers, right? But it's dangerous, right? To stay too long, right? Because that's like this moving target of when are you going to, you know, open the door, just like, like that person, right? Is is I and he had many exits before. That's interesting to me because he's not a it's not his first company. Yeah. Um, like I say, he's an older gentleman, so he has yeah. a great background, great expertise. But sure. it's like he's trying to become, you know, to get to a perfect state. And I'm like, your perfect state is always changing. So it when is, is that is. time, right? It it's is. always interesting. It you learn more and you get better, and you know, it is. It is. Stuff. My, my my perfect state is that if someone is willing to pay. <laughs> willing to pay for the first deployment that they did that's my perfect state you don't really have a product somebody's somebody's willing to pay for it i would argue you know you don't you don't have a product if no one is willing to pay for something it's just not a thing exactly 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 you know so yeah 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 so at least we agree on on that one i knew you would that's why i I kind of cheated we do now i'll I'll just kind of um, uh continue on uh, from a process perspective right like i think building the distributed teams that way the way mm-hmm. I've approached that always is to is to make sure we, we are honestly a truly a distributor team. We have first of all every, we are a remote first company, so everybody is pretty much remote. We have people remote. all over the U.S. in various places. We have someone working in Canada. We have a uh, we have a whole product team out of uh, out of India. Uh, the the way we started to do that was. First, ensuring the first engineer that comes on is um, is is somebody that was from the network, somebody that we knew, uh, who we had worked with before. Then the leader that we brought on was somebody that we have worked for uh, for 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 a long, long time. That means that there is mm-hmm. zero um, uh, trust building uh, that that is required, right? That's mm-hmm. I'm giving an ideal scenario, but I'll, I'll get to. Yeah, it's tough to get not there necessarily the, the case for everybody. Yeah. Right? Most people uh, want that one. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, but but so that is one scenario. If it can happen, that's perfect, right? But the second way of doing this is making sure that you bring the leader first. But the leader has to be somebody who is right for the stage. That means mm. that somebody who can go and because distributed teams, wherever you build it, you build it in Israel, you build it in in uh, in Europe, you build it in India, it doesn't matter. Bring a local leader who is hands-on. Don't mm. bring a local leader who is just a manager because mm. the culture that you build across the board for the first, I would say, 50 team members as in engineers as team members we can talk broadly as a company as well. Broadly as a company as well, it applies it. Is that mm-hmm. they should be really hands-on, whether they're in sales or in marketing or in or in or in product, doesn't matter. Really hands-on because the first 30 to 40 guys that come in, right? They are the ones who are actually making a lot of Do the work. core decisions that way, right? They're building the core company that way, right? Mm-hmm. That means that they, if the more hands-on they are, the better, right? And so distributed teams as well, I would go bring in a leader first rather than just going an individual engineer to begin with, because just because you can get, right? Unless you are going after just a remote first where, hey, I want to go higher wherever wherever the talent is, right? Then, of course, you're managing from here and you're, you're going through. But the moment you start to form distributed teams where there are localized teams, right? There are two things to keep in mind. There are localized cultures 
and there mm-hmm. are there is there is local understanding that needs to be there that's where a local mm-hmm. leader is very very important right and the local mm-hmm. leader if is hands on that means the culture continues of building hands on leaders across the company right mm. and 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 i think that's the that's the that that's the key thing there in terms of uh, that's one thing distributed teams uh everything comes down to that's what the whole remote work has taught us now right for example gitlab has been doing it for ages and uh, all of a sudden people are like hey um, uh, the, the 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 pandemic is hitting what do you do now right so everybody yeah. started to understand how hard it is to work remotely not that we have got it perfect or others have mastered it it's a very tough one and every company is different that culture probably needs to be built as part of that company but there are a couple of things that i can suggest there is make sure that you document the heck out of every single thing every single thing mm-hmm. that you do needs to be documented right uh, there is no substitute to that because otherwise the 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 communication breaks down and not everybody has the right mistakes, kind of yeah. right there, there are a lot of mistakes that can happen because of that right uh, other than that see if uh, see if uh, you can bring together people on a regular basis um uh, whether first of yeah, all guys in a lot of cases but definitely uh, uh, bring them together in some ways not again in the pandemic we yeah, can't succeed if they don't meet right there is no no such thing as a, as a successful company if they never even met one time ever i mean correct. it's impossible correct no one correct. can care right correct correct so i i would definitely look to kind of build that right uh, but at the core the the like we were talking about the values right the the core principles need to be agreed on early on right one of the things on 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 rn as an example uh there are no people managers that way right we mm. decided to bring in mostly technical managers people who are mm. mostly just focused on 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 technical aspects of it right mm-hmm. and then there's processes around uh, around uh, code quality and how code reviews are pretty critical as part of the organization and a day one investment is on the ci cd aspects of it right mm. um, uh, for example we are a huge harness user internally uh, because that was on day one itself we recognized that hey we need that to be inbuilt that means that no service can can just get deployed into dev staging or production without flowing through all of the right set of tests associated with it right so it means that mm-hmm. you go through all of the dev secops practices kind of from day one that way right and and those are all things that that kind of need to be set up from day one because it gets harder as the company starts to it's like that it's like that down the road it's just and it's harder to do it and people think they're moving faster by not doing it but it's just going to you know crumpon the problem down the road so yep 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 so so back to again just the 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 process and the hiring part of it there again is that make sure you're keeping at least a couple of years of scale in mind as you start right sometimes i feel like startups it's going to be very hard dude i'm just trying to survive make sure i can get through mm-hmm. this next few years yes but it doesn't like like with everything else right it 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 yeah, vision is what's, is what's is the free. good runway now with you know i mean clearly the market is what it is but what what would you say is a good runway now 18 my, months my my opinion is my opinion is about 2 to 2 and a half years 2 and a half years oh, if, yeah. you can, if you can actually do it i think that would be yeah. ideal uh yeah. uh two two years is okay but i think two and a half would be so even really more than me okay yeah right. that makes sense um because the more the better anyway the the more the more the better right now right probably now in this market, i think it's going to probably grow right now <laughs> i think maybe two years ago that would be a different story but i think yes. that's that's definitely yes. much safer yes yeah. yes 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 so so you raised you just closed a b round 
Uh, I assume you're hiring. <laughs> yes, and if we so, are. What, what kind of, what kind of uh, uh, people are you looking for? We have a lot of people that could be interested. Sure. Uh, we are looking for um, anyone who is, um, I would consider an expert in DevSecOps, right? People mm -hmm. who have spent the time in it, people, leaders who have actually spent the time and who understand how critical it is for an organization to have a very good CISO, to have a very good um, uh, general DevSecOps leadership, right? Mm -hmm. That's one thing that, that, that I'm uh, very interested in looking. Uh, mm -hmm. The other one that we are looking for is, uh, is someone who is, uh, uh, someone who is an expert in, uh, in, uh, in AI and machine learning who kind of try to see that, hey, these guys are thinking about APIs in a fundamentally different way. I want to be part of that uh, mm -hmm. to kind of build a lot of the uh, build and enhance a lot of the behavioral uh, understanding. The behavioral of the side of the house, yeah, right. Yep. So I would I would love to talk to anyone who's who's interested in that, right? Even if they're not looking, and if they think that it's again, it's a technology conversation and having fun with it, I would love to mm -hmm. chat, right? Uh, yeah. And then, of course, we are looking for um, uh, all smart engineers, right? Meaning developers. developers. Across the what board. languages? What languages should they know? Yeah, mainly uh, uh, C++, Java, Golang. Uh, Go. We are truly a polyglot. This thing that way, um, mm -hmm. uh, and and obviously we are microservices driven internally, mm -hmm. uh, right? And so yeah, and and, and of course uh, a heavy knowledge. And I think they need to understand the kind of Kubernetes and all yes, the universal like. It is because I tell you, a lot of our customers are on the journey, right? Not necessarily everybody. There are born in the cloud companies who are mostly mm -hmm. Kubernetes and Docker based, but there are larger enterprises who are who are still transitioning from data centers to the cloud in some cases and to legacy deployments to Kubernetes and Docker based deployments, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I obviously that that's something today in the DevSecOps world. The knowledge of that I think is is pretty uh, critical, right? Yeah. And you know, there's always something interesting to me, right? I'm always obviously with the background we have in DoD, we're looking at kind of the competition between nations, right? And we're looking at obviously China and Russia and North Korea and, and all that good stuff. That's pretty common sense. Yeah. At the same time, I've, I've, I've had so many uh, very successful uh, Indians, right? Join the show. I mean, you, you're one of many. Honestly, I, I feel like um, every C-level exec I meet nowadays is from India. Yeah. Uh, you know, the previous guest on the show also um, was the, the, the CISO Prakash, the CISO of CloudBees, right? So, so all these guys are uh, pretty exceptional. What would you say makes India such a, a breeding ground of, of innovators and, and tech guys that end up uh, kind of controlling most of the U.S. companies in IT? <laughs> What's going on there? I will, I will f first, one thing I would like to say is that U.S. is great at recognizing the people, right? I yeah. think, that, again, uh, Nick... Uh, We're not as racist as what people think. Yeah, that's I mean, again, I, I think it could be, obviously, everything could be different. It took me sure. 20 years to get a green card that way, and Jyoti was my... That sucks. I, I had yeah, to it took him 20 a, years as well, right? So, so it's, 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 that's the reality. But at the same time... But I we think, did it legally. We did it legally, right? It, we did it legally. <laughs> and, 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 and also, the U.S. is obviously very great at recognizing the talent, right? That That's the, that's yeah. the most amazing thing. But from an India perspective... I think the focus is always on education. The focus has been on education, right? Ever Very since right? you're a Very kid, early. right? There, there are only two directions. Either you become a doctor or you become an engineer 
or you are a waste. That's the That's way we all grew up, right? <laughs> Things have changed now. Now you can be a stand-up comedian, which and and yeah. and, and, uh, and so it's it's pretty amazing now to see that shift that's happened in India, right? But so so the direction was always yeah. that how do you educate the kids much better, and that has always been the uh, the bedrock. And of course, there's a lot of competition. So you think the school the schools are better? What what is it, Ready? If you go down to, is it just the culture or is it the schools? Uh, in my okay. opinion, it is it is a combination of that. I don't think we can just say the schools are better, right? Schools here mm -hmm. are great; they are amazing, yeah. right? I think it is a lot of it is that culture to kind of enforce that you are going to go study, otherwise you're not be you'll not be able to do anything. So in it's life, a culture, right? but do you say that the public schools are are good also in India compared yes. to because here public uh, schools are not absolutely. that great depending on where you absolutely. go, right? So, Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the schooling is great, no doubt about it. Um, uh, uh, and and again, a lot of the influences from here. And is it expensive, is, like here too? Because they, no, they're, I was they're, shocked. They're, moving from France, the schools is all free in France, and moving here, I was like, holy cow! You're now, gonna pay twelve thousand a year for for a kid. You know, it's I, just insane. I I tell you, I did my entire education probably about a thousand dollars is what I spent. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's a big difference. My brother was five years older than me. He completed all his education in maybe two hundred dollars, right? <laughs> uh, so yeah, it went up five x in five years. But yeah, thousand dollars is okay. Yeah, that's that's so. that, that's like a running error of one year of uh, of a college <laughs> degree here, right? So yeah. exactly, exactly, exactly. What do you think about the degrees? Do you think um, when you look at the talent you're hiring, do you even care? Do you look at degrees? Uh, no, not, not, it, so it depends on the area. Like for example, in the area of data science. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, data science. I think it's beneficial to have some form of a research degree there, right? Uh, yeah. whether, whether even in masters as in research or in the uh, this thing as well, right? And I think uh, and, and and so so that way. I other than that, honestly, degrees don't matter. Uh, I have I a high school. I have a high school diploma that counts, right, for something. Uh, I guess. <laughs> That's it, I it, it definitely does, but, <laughs> but I think the, the 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 idea is that, like like in all honesty, right? Uh, we have a, a whole bunch of uh, fresh undergrads who have come in, right? They are. I'm so amazed at the next generation of engineers and entrepreneurs that mm -hmm. are actually coming on because they are so much. Nick, I, again, you're right. You and I are not that old, but at the same time. <laughs> Uh, these younger guys that I actually get to meet every single day, whether they are founders of other companies or engineers as part of uh, Traceable, they are all so amazing. They're all so amazingly talented, passionate. They, they started writing code much earlier in their careers that way. And they are all not hesitant shipping code. That's the biggest yeah. thing, right? By the time, first time when I started to ship code that way as in a bigger company, it took me almost a year before I shipped any good code, right? Mm -hmm. But these guys are all amazing. Of course, they're empowered to do it, but at the same time, they're also not afraid to go and write good stuff and actually ship it out, right? So yeah, so it's a, a degree doesn't matter. It's more yeah. of the passion. I, I had, a, I had a, a good discussion at, at SpaceX with an engineer that came from Lockheed and he spent 28 yeah. years at Lockheed and he told me software in 28 years never made it to space, but it, within three weeks at SpaceX, his software made it to space. And that was exactly. like a pretty good advertising for SpaceX right there. Exactly, exactly. I think, back to schooling, right? I think the schooling, probably the main thing that needs to happen is it needs to evolve with the times. That's the main thing, right? As long as we are kind of, Going and 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 keeping that industry connection when it comes to yeah. schooling, 
that's all that is required. I think sure. schooling, in in my opinion at least, schooling here is 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 really good. I think it just needs to get to that next level in terms but of. Do you find like the, the, the the kids coming out of of college? You know, from, from what I've seen at least, uh, companies struggle even to put them to work because what they learn is often obsolete, and they have to kind of reinvent and you know, kind of spend a year. Right. I see Google having these uh, one year, right. you know engagements right. to to update so so is that really that good if, if we teaching people stuff that's already obsolete by the time they come out of school and they pay half a million for it and, and that is the challenge and that's the challenge yeah. and also depends on what kind of degrees they're getting and everything else sure. and i agree with you right so depending, science yeah. is probably different i agree with data they are science yeah yeah but so, that, so that might that might change in 10 years because I, you know i try to partner with with schools right to to help them with the uh, devsecops curriculums yeah most schools refuse to update curriculums more than uh, every three three to five years. And I said, that's not going to fly for DevSecOps. So I refused to get engaged. Correct. You know, Correct. That, that, just, that tells you like, they are fine charging you, you know, 200 grand per year, but updating yes. the curriculum, woo, you know, that's yes. too much work. Yes. But I think that's where the internships actually help, right? In a lot of cases, yes. people need to get into that whole hands on. internship cycle. Get them hands-on, get them to learn everything, right? And so yeah. you see companies like Google and all these guys are creating their own kind of learning experience and, and doing kind of this model of like a split between school and, and, and in the company that that's a pretty good model, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and, and I think um, that, that, that's what needs to be encouraged more. I think gone are the days where you had a curriculum and you stuck to it for the first five years, four years, whatever it is. I think gone are those days. I, I don't think that's going to work in the future, right? Yeah. So we have three questions that we have sure. left before we let you go. I know you're busy. So, um, all right. So uh, Tom was asking, uh, as someone who has built and sold a company or two, what what was your biggest success and what was your biggest failure? Yeah. So um, uh, I think the, uh, the the biggest success, I assume, the, the conversation is more... Um, uh, the business stuff. Yeah. I mean, I guess your kids could be one or whatever. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> Forget they about are, the kids. They are. <laughs> they, they, they honestly are. So, as 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 part of uh, uh, as as part of the, the, the one one of the key success metrics always is the revenue part of it, right? Mm-hmm. What I think uh, myself and, and and the entire team, like for example, if you look at App Dynamics as a company, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, Jyoti Bansal was the founder of App Dynamics, uh, one of the biggest successes that 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 I and the entire team walked away with. How many customers even today that we meet have mm-hmm. a conversation we say, we use that product and you guys actually worked with us to actually deploy the product and, and, and get it to scale, get it to discover real issues in our production environment, right? Mm-hmm. The number of customers that talk to us about that is still mm-hmm. overwhelming, right? So I, mm-hmm. I consider that as one of, one of the biggest successes that way. That so not the sale, but the, the, the customer adoption. Customer adoption, right? That's mm-hmm. what is very, mm-hmm. very important. Even today, right. everything as part of Traceable is about how many customers are getting deployed in production, how many are using it every single day, right? Mm-hmm. That's where our customer obsession comes from, right? Uh, biggest failure. Uh, mm-hmm. I think as as one, one of like, one of the biggest failures that way that that I still uh, as, as as part of the whole journey, I'm sure if we talk to a lot of the app dynamics folks that way will we'll tell you that is uh, Cisco acquired it just three days before going public. 
And I think it would have been <laughs> nice to take it through that and build a much longer term company. Mm. Um, uh, so collectively, I feel that selling too early. What? Sell, selling too early? Not exactly selling too early, but I, I think again, it so happened whatever as part of the whole process. Yeah, the, but at the same right. time, I think uh, probably um, uh, that's one thing that that I would consider that we could have uh, we could have done differently, right? Mm. But, but but I think uh, the, the 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 success there on the other side of it is that we saw how APIs were changing the world. Coming back to it, and again, you'll you'll always see me kind of think in that direction mm. because that's again. That's what life is today for me. But but yeah. but regardless, That's real, yeah. seeing that there was so much that we could have done with APIs and everything else, and that we are now continuing to do. That way, we're kind of uh, we saw that early on. So that's that's another success that I that I really think is uh, is is pretty critical for us. Cool. All right. Next question. William was asking as you are planning out uh, your different APIs, how yeah. do you determine the language and technology that is the best fit for for microservice? Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's again. It, it's 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 the case by case for the right yeah. job, right? Yeah. Uh, so, but, but do you do you give unlimited access to all languages in your team, or you say no, you have to stick to C plus plus, Go, Java, yeah. or you say, hey, use the best tool for the job? No, I think when it comes to languages, we typically have. Uh, of course, there is the UI side of it, which which can be a little bit different. But most right. we are speaking to GoLang and Java. Right mm -hmm. now, what this 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 is where that goes back to the founding team that you bring in. They're very critical. They, the the team that you bring is what is typically going to be the language of choice, right? Right. Because that that initial otherwise you will spend a lot of time ramping up people on a whole bunch of things, right? You don't want yeah. to waste on that. That means that the people, the skills they bring in is typically what you choose, right? So mm -hmm. in terms of the language and technology, in our case, it's 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 uh, basically GoLang, Java. And uh, C++ is what, what we mostly have, mm -hmm. right, uh, in terms of microservices and everything else. But, but I would say, um, uh, like we, like, like many out there, and we also are heavy users of open source technologies, right, mm -hmm. all the way from open telemetry to, 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 uh, to Kafka to everything else that we use. Uh, so I think it is, in, in a lot of cases, depends on what you're trying to build. But if, if I were to kind of say, uh, start everything from scratch, I would definitely look at um, GoLang as a, as, a, as a language of mm -hmm. choice for all microservices that way. Yeah. I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of beating from people who are. No, who no are, I think uh, that's pretty good. <laughs> so how would you evaluate the risk of using an open source API compared to an API that is uh, vendor uh, locked in and with no, open, no source code available? Yeah, actually, this is a very excellent question. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about the no source code available. Uh, not a name. Black box, right? Yeah, it's a black box eh? because it, there was a uh, there was a, there was a there was a company uh, one of one of our customers who were using uh, a reporting service that was written in Java, and their idea was that oh, this is this is an application that we picked up and it just runs. We don't know how it works. We have just built reporting on top of it, and it's sitting somewhere. It is running, right? And uh, mm -hmm. what they did not realize was that that was actually log for shell vulnerable. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, that means that pretty much their their entire environment could have been taken over, right? So they didn't have an idea because it was sitting behind, it was sitting behind an API, and they were just mm -hmm. using it, right? So in a lot of cases, 
that can be tricky when it's a black box, right? So I think in 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 so so my recommendation there is to always understand the APIs that you're using, especially as they are hosted internally. If they are a service mm-hmm. that is offering it, in a lot of cases, um, the 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 set, the risk from a from an API perspective is mostly data aspect of it and the data privacy aspects of it, right? That's what the risk there is, right? But in the case of the open source API where where uh, where you have the code and everything else, the biggest aspect there is the is the um, is where is that code coming from? Who all are mm-hmm. part of it? The provenance, the contributors. Exactly. How is it getting distributed? How are you integrating that as part of your pipeline, right? If mm-hmm. if it is if it in whatever reason it is integrated the wrong way, that's when there mm-hmm. is there is a bit of an issue, right? And mm-hmm. I think that integration is very key. And then also the other aspect of it is that what 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 it, the usage of that API? How clear are you about it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's what is what is uh, not helpful is if that API uh, gets used in multiple different ways. Are you tracking those the right way? Who all are using it? Not just in terms of at a code level, but at a runtime level. How are they getting used? As long as you're tracking those, then I think you should be okay. Very good. Well, we were lucky to have you today. As always, what I do is I, I leave the, the the last meaningful words to you. And, I, and then after that, I'm going to tell people about the next show. But we'll give you uh, the next few minutes to just uh, uh, give give, uh, give us your last uh, thoughts. Over Absolutely. to you. So, so uh, uh, I think for me, uh, DevSecOps as a movement is core to the success going forward. And uh, APIs are the key to the success of every business because every businesses are API driven now. So for you to fundamentally know about your APIs, you need to discover them the right way. You need to protect them the right way. And before that, you need to understand uh, how the risk of these APIs um, uh, what the risk of these APIs are in your lower environment. Uh, that's what will help you to kind of understand the overall risk posture, right? And uh, that's where check out uh, Traceable. And obviously, I'm happy to chat with anybody. Connect me on LinkedIn. And I'm happy to chat about anything and everything, as, as we discussed, uh, all the way from uh, APIs, of course, to startups and everything else. I'm learning. Well- we're lucky, we're lucky to, to have you today. It was a very fun conversation, both on the cyber side, but also, like you said, on the entrepreneurial side. A lot of people want to give it a shot. Uh, a lot of people talk about it, but never take the jump, so they should give it a shot or stop talking Scratch about it. Scratch your Scratch right? your <laughs> Either you do it, but either you stop talking about it or you do it, right? But uh, <laughs> it's not for everybody, but if you want to do it, go for it, right? Uh, now, back to the schedule. Uh, unfortunately, next week, I'm going to be in Texas to give a keynote. Uh, to uh, in San Antonio. So, if you, so for people in San Antonio, if you want to join us at the Vitech uh, Innovate 2022, I'll be the keynote uh, Tuesday 7th uh, the morning. So I won't be able to do the show for the first time in uh, well eight months. That's okay because we will see you on the fourth uh, the 14th uh, of uh, June, uh, the week after, with uh, Chris Hughes, uh, who is uh, well known in the DoD, uh, the CISO and co-founder of Aquaya. Uh, so Chris will be on and we'll have a very interesting conversation about his journey, both in the department and then outside of it and uh, what he's been uh, focusing on. So we'll see you in uh, two weeks. Uh, in the meantime, stay safe. And again, uh, Sanjay, thanks for being here with us and everybody have fun and stay safe. Bye bye.